Welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. Today we're following a rather ambitious program to get from the sack of Rome uh, in 410 to the cusp of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, For clarity, I should remind you that everything covered in this episode happens when the church in the western half of the old Roman Empire is Catholic, with a small c, meaning universal. Later, after the Reformation, we'll begin to say Roman Catholic, meaning the church under the direction of the Bishop of Rome, as opposed to the parts of the church that will fall away. Just as an aside, when we have a baptism in the United Church, we welcome people, usually babies, into membership in the Holy Catholic Church, meaning the worldwide Church of Christ in all its forms. This understanding is based on agreements signed, which are generally followed by the signees. In other words, United Church baptism is supposed to be honored as legitimate across the Christian Church regardless of flavor. Aside from my aside, uh, the key point here is that there is about a thousand years of Catholic, meaning universal, uh, uh, then a split with the East, which gives us a Catholic West and an Orthodox East, and about 500 years uh, later, a split in the West that gives us the present Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. And so we begin. Perhaps the perfect bridge from the early church to the church of the Middle Ages is Augustine of Hippo. He lived during an important hinge point between these two eras, both within the church and the surrounding culture. His story happens in the midst of a transition from the Roman world to the world that followed. Born in 354 in a provincial town in North Africa, Augustine received a fine classical education locally and in Carthage on the Mediterranean coast. He became a teacher of rhetoric, took a mistress, had a son, and settled into a middle-class Roman life. He followed the Manichaean religion, a very popular Gnostic offshoot, that taught the perpetual struggle between the light of the spiritual realm and the darkness of the earthly realm. Later, the followers of this sect would regret that Augustine was so familiar with their teachings. So Augustine was a young man with a bright future. He tried to begin a school of rhetoric in Rome, but left disappointed in the poor quality of his Roman students. He was invited to apply to teach in Milan, the Harvard of the day, and won the position. There, at age 30, uh, he had reached his vocational goal. It was in Milan that he began to fully reconsider his religious beliefs. The first factor in his reconsideration of Manichaeism was his mother, Monica. She moved with him to Milan and never stopped praying that he would embrace her Christian faith. Add to this his increasing dissatisfaction with his co-religionists within Manichaeism and his friendship with Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, and the stage is set for his conversion. It helped that Ambrose was also an expert in rhetoric and greatly admired by Augustine. Meanwhile, uh, his personal life was a mess. 
under pressure from Monica, Augustine accepted an engagement to a woman of the right station, and he set aside his mistress. The marriage was delayed, however, because his betrothed was only 11 years of age. He began a relationship with a second mistress and seemed to live with a lot of guilt. It was in this period that he made the famous statement, Grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. Sitting in his garden one afternoon, likely pondering his complicated life, he heard a child's voice singing, Take up and read. The nearest scroll was St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, and he opened it randomly to chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. It said, Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in clamoring and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Baptized by Ambrose in 387, Augustine resolved to return to North Africa. He made his way to Hippo, both his mother and son, had sadly died in this period, and he decided to set up a religious community. Ordained a priest, he became known for his preaching. He became bishop of Hippo around 400, a position he held until his death in 430. Augustine was first and foremost an author. He's credited with writing the first autobiography in Western literature and over a hundred other titles, including The City of God, his most important work. In it, he defines the relationship between Christianity and the state and takes a skillful swipe at other competing religions. He argues that the Christian church must remain the city of God and distance itself from the city of man, of the political realm. If we had to make a list of ideas and accomplishments attributed to Augustine, it would include a philosophical explanation of both the Trinity and free will, of original sin, predestination, a new understanding of the church, and a renewed understanding of the sacraments, and add to that the just war theory. While much of North Africa lived in peace during the lifetime of St. Augustine, the situation in Western Europe was quite different. The church survived, despite the turmoil of that period, but it was a case of mere survival. It's likely that in the year 500, there were only two libraries left in continental Europe, one in Rome and the other in Calabria. By the end of the century, the latter was lost as well. The light of learning nearly extinguished, historians began to call this the Dark Ages. Then an astounding thing happened. Beginning at Iona, Uh, St. Columba set out to create a monastic community dedicated to prayer, farming, as well as study and the creation and preservation of books. From Iona in Scotland, the movement spread, and St. Columba is credited with founding 60 monasteries in his lifetime. The movement continued first to the British Isles, then to the tribes of northern Europe, never conquered by the Romans, and then to the rest of Europe. There were Celtic communities as far south as Italy and as far east as Vienna.
It was during the 5th century that the Germanic tribes that divided up the remains of the Western Empire slowly converted to Christianity. The same can be said for the Frisians, the Saxons, the Jutes, and others. The most significant conversion, perhaps, is that of Clovis, king of the Franks, uh, who over time became one of the most loyal adherents of the church. It must be said that the new converts to Christianity didn't appear markedly different from their unconverted brethren. Uh, This was a very warlike Christianity, and the church could do little to change it. In the domain of religion, however, the church had unparalleled power. Beginning in the mid-5th century, the Bishop of Rome is generally accepted as the ruler of the worldwide church. The Pope, as he comes to be called, claims the power of the keys to rule on all matters. The Council of Chalcedon uh, in 451 finally settles the question of the true nature of Jesus, that is, uh, fully human and fully divine, and further reinforces the notion that the Bishop of Rome guides the Church. We're we're obviously moving very quickly here, um, but you could pause the tape, Uh, to ponder everything you've heard so far, and perhaps also uh, talk about why the church spent so much time defining itself and setting these parameters. The answer, I expect, is partly a response to what comes to be defined as wrong belief, and also an effort to bring order to a rapidly expanding church. Church spreads across Europe and Asia, making it uh, to India and China in the Middle Ages, and it requires uh, a sense of order. Later, the emergence of Islam will add new urgency to this question of order and authority, to which we will now turn. Just as an aside, if you'd like to learn more about the Church of the East, the church that made it to India and China, uh, I would recommend Philip Jenkins' book, The Lost History of Christianity, uh, published in 2009. Uh, You can also look at the Wikipedia article titled Church of the East. Uh, It has some maps that you can look at. The birth of Islam creates the greatest challenge to Christianity to date. The faith that served Allah, meaning God, through the teachings of the prophet Muhammad, uh, who died in 632, was both moralistic and expansionist, with the belief that Muslims must bring all peoples to submission to the will of God, Islam began to expand at a remarkable rate. In the first hundred years after the death of the prophet, Islam conquered Damascus, Jerusalem, Syria, Egypt, North Africa, Iraq, Persia, to the edges, again, of China and India. They took parts of the Iberian Peninsula and were finally halted by Charles Martel at Tours uh, in France in 732. The church and the various states of Europe needed each other as never before. In the midst of this uncertainty emerged Charlemagne, king of the Franks, who managed to expand his kingdom to include what we now call France, Holland, Belgium, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Italy, and parts of Spain. The only thing he lacked was the complete blessing of the church, which he finally received on Christmas Day, the year 800, when Pope Louis III crowned him with the title Holy Roman 
emperor. The church in the Eastern Roman Empire, which remarkably lasted until 1453, developed quite differently. With strong political leadership centered in Constantinople, the church had a subservient role in Byzantine culture. It may be that the external threats were greater, or it may be something unique to the local culture. Whatever the cause, the Church of the East preferred to be the power behind the throne and not a rival for power. It's interesting to observe the ways in which the Russian Orthodox Church revived this approach with the fall of the Soviet Union, giving the Russian reformers their support and expecting state protection in return. Tension between East and West began as theological differences emerged. In the middle of the 11th century, Rome amended the Nicene Creed to read that the Spirit proceeded from both the Father and the Son, the Filioque Clause, uh, and this proved to be the last straw. Add the West's unwillingness to assist the East in thwarting Muslim expansion, and we see that the seeds of schism were sown. In July of 1054, Orthodox Patriarch Michael and Pope Leo IX excommunicated each other. The split between East and West was complete. Several things were happening in the Church in the West in the latter half of the 11th century that coalesced into one of the most controversial aspects of Christian history. That would be the Crusades. The recent split with the East a contested papal election, and increased tension between pilgrims and the caliphs that ruled Jerusalem troubled the people. Until the mid-11th century, pilgrims could make the journey unmolested, but this began to change. With a general increase in religious fervor throughout Europe, the situation was ripe for a holy war. In 1095, Pope Urban II preached one of the most outwardly effective sermons of all time. He excited the crowd with a picture of the holy places being desecrated and promised the cancellation of debts, exemption from taxes, and a crown of eternal life to all who would fight to liberate the Holy Land. In the frenzy, the crowd shouted, God wills it! and set off even before an official crusade can be or could be organized. Of that first group that set out, nearly 7,000 crusaders, armed largely with enthusiasm, were killed by the Turks. The following year, led mainly by French noblemen, an organized army set out and fought their way into the Holy Land. When a small band reached Jerusalem in the spring of 1099, they began by marching around the walls of the city, much in the manner that Joshua did at Jericho. The walls didn't fall. Then on Good Friday, after a siege and assault, and after a vision of St. George appeared in the sky, at exactly three o'clock, the hour of Christ's death, the invaders breached the walls. A great slaughter followed. The streets ran with blood. Godfrey of Lorraine, in a white linen suit, conducted a thanksgiving service in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and then he and his men resumed the massacre. Tears of women and children did not save them. 
Some accounts say that all the inhabitants were slain. And on Christmas Day, the following year, following the death of Godfrey, his brother Baldwin was crowned king of Jerusalem. But the conquest was short-lived. In a permanent state of conflict with the Turks, the Crusaders began losing territory. By 1187, Jerusalem was once again in Turkish hands, and the Third and Fourth Crusades failed to win back the city. Aside from the immorality of mass murder, the Crusades also saw the birth of nationalism as countries competed for territory in the Holy Land, Uh, The increased sale of indulgences, time off from purgatory and all the corruption that came with it, and the expression of a more militant Christian culture. The papacy reached the zenith of its power under Innocent III, a misnomer if there ever was one. For the first time, heresy was declared a capital crime, and the Church institutionalized the pursuit and execution of religious dissenters. The Inquisitor was not subject to law, only the authority of the Pope. Trials were secret, and the accused had to prove their innocence. The victim had no counsel, nor were his accusers identified. Favorable witnesses were charged with abetting heresy, Accused people, as well as witnesses, were tortured. Testimony from criminals and children could be used against the accused, but not for the accused. The death penalty was carried out in the most painful ways possible. Perhaps it's time for a question. Why do you think that two of the most regrettable aspects of Christian history happened in the same 200 or so year period? Take a moment to pause if you wish. As we move into the next period, uh, we see the first universities were founded and the first flowering of real theological debate begins. Peter Abelard, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, Thomas Aquinas, and others produce theological ideas that continue to influence Christian thinkers. Another trend around reform and the redirection away from the excesses of a powerful church began in many places, but most earnestly in Assisi. Francis, the son of a wealthy merchant, grew up in a prosperous city experiencing the first wave of capitalist expansion. At first, he reveled in the life of a careless youth, uh, then began to get an increasing sense that greed and the pursuit of wealth was meaningless. In a revolt among the poor in the region, he sided with the poor and was imprisoned for a year. Inspired by the poverty and communal nature of the early church, Francis resolved to beg for his livelihood and own nothing. He would seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit and celebrate the gifts that God provided. Francis decided to journey to Rome and found only disappointment when he saw how little the pilgrims were contributing to St. Peter's shrine. He exchanged clothes with a beggar and returned to Assisi determined to care for lepers. One day, while praying in a local chapel, Francis heard a voice commanding him to repair God's house. 
Hearing a literal command, he began to repair churches in the area using his father's money. His father had him arrested. At trial, Francis renounced his father and his wealth, and having dressed up for court, he stripped off all his fancy clothes for good measure. The priest nearby gave him a cloak. His transformation into a holy man was now complete. For three years, he continued to rebuild churches and care for lepers. Sympathetic priests taught him to read. He was most moved by Matthew 10, and it became the rule for his rapidly expanding group of followers. It said, cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for laborers deserve their food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who in it is worthy and stay there until you leave. As you enter a house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. The Franciscans were greeted with caution. Their movement was critical of the wealth and power of the church, yet biblically motivated and very popular. Innocent III agreed to recognize the order if they pledged obedience to the Pope, and they did. The movement redirected many within the church to serve the poor and to be concerned with personal piety. Some argue that Francis helped preserve religion for the masses. He promoted a creation-based spirituality, preached to the birds, and he tamed wild animals. He concentrated on the wounds of Christ until he received the stigmata, bringing together in his body a mystical joy in creation and crucifixion, the unsearchable mercies of God. Two years after his death, he was canonized a saint. Contrast the life of Francis with the state of the church in the century that followed. The papacy became entangled with national rivalries, and when the French church became ascendant in the early 14th century, the seat of the papacy moved to Avignon. Uh, The period 1309 to 1377 is known as the Babylonian captivity with repeated efforts to return Peter's successor to the throne of Peter. The failure of this effort led to the Great Schism 1378 to 1417 with a pope in Avignon and a pope in Rome. For a short time, there were three popes. Of the many voices calling for reform, I'll mention one, uh, John Wycliffe, uh, 1328 to 1384. Uh, Wycliffe, a, a priest and a professor, called for reform. He questioned the authority of the Pope. He questioned whether the host became the literal body of Christ during the Mass. And he rejected confession as a sacrament, among other things. Uh, In his spare time, he organized an English translation of the Bible and personally translated much of the New Testament. Wycliffe also had the good fortune of dying in his own bed before the church was fully organized in its opposition to his ideas. 
Still, some thirty years later, he was dug up and his bones were burnt and tossed in the river. Much of what he promoted was deemed heretical, including translating the Bible into English, and it would be well over a century before Bible translators could set up shop in England again. Despite the sad fate of his bones, Wycliffe would come to be known as the morning star of the Reformation, the topic we will look at next time. Thank you for joining me.